Turn, if you would, to the second chapter of 1 John. We did make it to New York City this week, and we went and saw Music Man with Hugh Jackman. He only cracked up laughing twice in the play. <laughs> so he was having a good time. Uh, for the finale, he comes out to do, if you've seen the musical, 76 trombones, and he had a whistle, and he kept trying to blow the whistle, and the whistle didn't work. <laughs> so he finally just said, whistle, and everybody came out, and they started the scene. So... Last week, we made it through three verses. Today, we'll probably make it through a few more than that. But just to remind ourselves of last week's lesson, starting in verse uh, 15, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. So we had a long discussion about the world and what that meant. And I quoted A.W. Tozer in his essay about is the world a battleground or is the world a playground? And I was reminded of this uh, while we were in New York. We went to the 9-11 Museum, and in that vicinity is St. Paul's Chapel, not cathedral, chapel. And we went in there, and there was, were different people buried in the wall. You know how this works, right? And one of them says, here the wicked cease from troubling and the weary are at rest. This idea that this world is not meant to be our playground. We are here to do what God has told us to do. The rest of it says, the stone is erected in memorial of the piety and virtues of Effingham Warner who resigned this life in full assurance of a blissful immortality on the 30th of September, 1796. Any of you alive? No. no. <laughs> so that was last week's lesson. So picking up in verse 18 for today's lesson. Children, it is the last hour. Let's just stop right there. Several times in this book, uh, John has referred to his reader as children. It is a term of endearment. It is emphasizing the fact that John is, as we have said repeatedly, the elder statesman of the church. He is talking to the reader. He is talking to us as one who has the authority of a parent. Children, this is the last hour. Now, that phrase oftentimes causes teachers to have problems, okay? Because if you ask me what is the last hour, I think it's, well, like real quick, right? Um, you know, we're on a long airplane ride, and you've been sitting there forever, and now you know that you're in the last hour. That means that the plane is going to land in the next hour, well, John has written this 1900 and something years ago. That's a long last hour. But in reality, 
we need to understand the biblical mindset. You know, we all have different ways of looking at time. Uh, my three-year-old grandson stayed with us overnight, and to him, anything that happened in the past is last night. Did you go someplace? Yes, we did last night. Anything happening in the future is tomorrow. That's all he knows. Last night and tomorrow. To John and the apostles, there is the time of Christ. There is the return of Christ. And in between are the last days, the last hour, the last times. John and the other apostles and the other New Testament writers want us to live in the expectation that Christ could come at any time, but that we are to live our lives in preparation so that we will be ready whether he comes tomorrow or a hundred years from now. And we'll actually have a discussion about that in just a moment because it will talk about us being confident and not being put to shame when he does return. So, children, we are in the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many, many Antichrists have come. Antichrist, in our mind, carries with it the connotation of a guy at the end of time, right? There is some guy that is going to take over most of the world at the end time. But John is not going to talk about that Antichrist. He's going to talk about a group that he refers to as those who are Antichrist, those who are going to deny the deity, the reality, or whatever of Jesus Christ. So, if you think that we're going to talk about who the Antichrist is, you're going to be disappointed. Although I did Google on it this week, uh, the top seven choices of who the Antichrist is. The top of the list is the Pope. Okay, not the current, just always the Pope. Since the Protestant Reformation, the Pope has always been at the top of the list. So he's on the list. Also on the list is the American president, whoever he is at whatever time. There were those who thought George Washington was going to be the Antichrist, or FDR, or Barack Obama. They're all going to be the Antichrist. There were those who thought Hitler was the Antichrist. There were those who thought Nero was the Antichrist. Those are two pretty good choices. Um, I actually listened to a lecture 30 years ago where the guy thought that Prince Charles was the Antichrist. <laughs> what can I say? So you can actually Google on list of people who people have thought were the Antichrist. We're not going to talk about that. We're going to talk about this group of people who John is going to refer to as anti that is against Christ. And I might add, if you look up the Greek word, the Greek word is 
Antichrist. Antichristos. It is as it says. There's also a Greek word for pseudo-Christos, which the ESV will translate false messiahs. People who are claiming to be the Messiah, but obviously aren't. So, who is, Paul, uh, who is John talking about when he talks about the Antichrist plural? So now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that this is the last hour because there are false teachers. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might be plain that they are not of us. Y'all followed that sentence, didn't you? First off, we have to have a very brief discussion about who the us are. And basically, there's two thoughts about that. And I'll take either one you want. The first is that the us is, well, us. They were with us, but they weren't part of us. And the way we know they weren't part of us is because they left the community. They left the community of believers. More about that in just a moment. The second option is that he is talking about those who have a position of authority. John is talking about us, the apostles and the leaders of the early church. He is talking about teachers who have walked away from the faith and are now preaching and teaching something that is anti-Christ. And you know what? I'll take either one of those answers because I think they're both probably true. But I also think we need to touch just briefly on a topic that is important to a lot of people. And that is the idea of losing one's salvation. Here's the question. You're a member of the congregation. You are a member of the us. And at some point, you walk away from the us. Option number one, you were a believer, and then you ceased being a believer. Option number two is you were pretending to be a believer, and you demonstrated that you were not really a believer by the fact that you walked away. I think John is telling us that that second answer is the correct answer. How does he demonstrate that they weren't really part of us? He demonstrates that by the fact that they walked away. Those who are in Christ will stay in Christ. Now, when I was growing up in my Baptist church, uh, we always used to say that our pastor, great guy, great guy, he only had one sermon, and that was about how to be saved. And whatever passage of the scripture he was looking at, that's what he would teach. And 
he was a firm believer in what was called the security of the believer. That is, once saved, always saved. The reformers actually had a stronger position with this, and it was known as perseverance of the saints because it carries with it the idea that not only are you saved forever, but that you will, in fact, persevere in that faith. And that perseverance is the outward presentation that you are, in fact, a believer. Now, you and I all are aware of people who at some point had made a profession of faith and have at some point walked away. And we want, we desire to be kind and say, yes, they were saved, they're just running amok, and God still has them. And we want that to be true. I want that to be true. But John is kind of teaching us here that persevering, staying with the faith is an indication of salvation. Now, jumping ahead just a moment, I mean, in today's lesson just a little bit, why do we believe that if you are saved truly saved, you cannot lose your salvation. And I might add, every time I have taught this in this class, somebody has come up afterwards and said, I don't believe that. Okay? You grew up in a different tradition that said you could. If I choose to accept Christ, I can unchoose to accept Christ. Makes sense, right? But in just a moment, we're going to see that the promise that has been given to us is eternal life. That is the phrase that's used. The promise is eternal life. Now, here's the question. What is eternal life? It is life that goes on for eternity. Okay? Now, if I believe that I can lose my salvation... When I become a believer, I am not receiving eternal life. I am receiving potential eternal life. I'm receiving that which could be eternal life as long as I stay with the club. But the moment I want to walk away from it, then that promise of eternal life was really a misnomer. Because I did not receive eternal life, I received the potential of eternal life. So I believe, this church believes, that if you have in fact received Jesus Christ as your Savior, and the phrase we're going to talk about in just the next verse is being anointed by the Spirit, if that truly has happened, you will, in fact, be saved for all eternity. You will, in fact, have received eternal life. But we also acknowledge quite clearly 
that there are those who are with us that are not part of us and at some point will, could walk away from their appearance of being in the faith. It's a difficult topic. I know that with my Church of Christ friend, he and I have had long discussions about this, okay, because he does not believe. Because if I accept it, I can reject it. Did you want to ask a question? Well, the, the, re, the idea of a rededication, I mean, my Baptist church, you did that. You know, we had an altar call every Sunday, and you would come down and accept Christ, or you'd come down to, because we acknowledge the fact that even as a believer, you can wander into the mud, and you need to say, community, I'm back. Now, you are not being re-saved, or... You hadn't been saved in the first place, both of which are potentials, right? That's what John is telling us in this passage. So he is talking about the Antichrist, plural, as those who appeared to be with us but were not part of us, and they demonstrated that they were not part of us by the fact that they left us. That's why you get this complicated structure of a sentence, okay? Just to remind ourselves, I'll read it again. They went out from us, that is, they left us, but they were not for us. They were not really part of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued to be with us. They would have continued to be part of Christ. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not of us. Okay, now, just to remind us, in case you have a family member who has done this, you do know, right, that you can be a true believer and at some point move from the Baptist church to the Bible church or from this church to that church, and that doesn't mean you have gone off the deep end. Okay? Just, I just want to remind you, okay? I mean, I, once again, being raised in the Baptist church, remember a Sunday school teacher when I was in high school talking about cults, and he mentioned the Methodist church, <laughs> which I thought was weird. Um, although I do might, I might, I might add, uh, I was on an airplane one time and I sat next to a guy and I asked him what he did and he was a Methodist minister. And the first words out of his mouth after that was, I'm part of the Methodist church that still believes the Bible. <laughs> I just thought it was odd that he felt, felt compelled to tell that to me because, well, anyway, But you, 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 us, you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. There's that word again. Do you remember about, I don't know, four lessons ago, 
We had a long discussion about what it meant to know things, what knowledge is. In this case, it's more than just, I've got the facts straight. It means that I have a relationship with this knowledge. It means something to me. I have put it into practice. So he is telling them, he is telling the receiver of this letter, he is telling us that there's two indications, two things that we have that makes us part of the us. One, we have the anointing of the Holy Spirit, and two, we have a relationship with a certain understanding of who Christ is. I should rephrase that, of who Jesus is, because the knowledge is that Jesus is the Christ. Okay? We've talked about that many times, but just to remind ourselves, we oftentimes use the word Jesus Christ to the point that we begin to think Christ is his last name. His first name is Jesus, and his last name is Christ. That's not true. His name is Jesus. His position is that of the Messiah, which is Christ. He is the Messiah that's promised over in the Old Testament to us. So his name is Jesus. He is the Christ. More about this in just a moment. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because, there, because no lie is in the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. You can tell by the way that John is addressing the reader that he understands that they are believers. You get that, right? Um, some of the letters by other people in the New Testament, you begin to get the feeling that he's not real sure, you know, you're probably a believer, but let me set things straight. That's not what John is doing here. John understands that they are believers. He understands that they are believers and that they have the truth. And within the truth, there are, there is no lie. Okay, that's what he just said. Along with that, we have a certain knowledge. Remember, we talked about this, as I said, three or four weeks ago. Thirty times in this book, John is going to say, you know this. You know something is true. You know. If you know Christ, then this is true. If you don't know Christ, then that's not true, okay? That is the knowledge. So, this is the Antichrist, 
He who denies the Father and the Son. So, the Antichrist is the person who had appeared to be part of the us, be that the congregation or the leadership within the community, and now they have denied something about Jesus and or the Father. Now, do we today, in our world, have those who are nominally part of a Christian community who have, in some way, denied something about Jesus and or the Father? And the answer is, of course, yes. What have they denied? Well, the most prevalent one, I would believe, would be those who have denied that Jesus is, in fact, the Son of God. They have taught us that Jesus is, was, not is, was, a great teacher. I've told you the professor that I had in the humanities course, she loved Jesus and Socrates. They were great teachers who died because they were telling the truth and the people couldn't handle the truth. And they died. And they died. The end of the story. That is very prevalent in our world today. I mean, we had a long discussion about this just a while back. In addition to that, we have people who, well, just denied that Jesus ever existed, which to me I find strange given the impact that Jesus has obviously had on in the world that we live in today. I don't care if you loved him or hated him, it's hard to deny that he has an, had an impact that has affected the entire world. Yet we have people who go, eh, well, he may have existed, he may not have. But if he did exist, he was just a good teacher like a bunch of other good teachers. And the apostles, the disciples afterwards, got together and concocted all these stories about him doing all this miraculous stuff, which we, being good, modern, intelligent people, know couldn't possibly have happened. That's the story that is often taught in our churches in our world today. What John is doing is he's warning us about false teachers. The reality of the false teacher, the presence of the false teacher, and the fact that we need to watch out for false teachers. So we have those who are denying something about Christ. But he says Christ and the Father. What do we have people denying about the Father today? Well, that he exists. We have a very strong atheist community in the world today. Um, it actually isn't as large as you might think it is. There are actually very few people who will line up and say, I don't believe in God. 
What we do have is a large community who will live as if we don't believe in God. Okay? I'll say there's a God because, well, my mother said there was a God and my mother wasn't going to lead me astray. But when I live my everyday life, well, we'll act as if there was no God. Which brings us back to last week's lesson, because if I'm going to live as if there is no God, what am I going to do? I'm going to be worldly. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. That was last week's lesson. So, who is the Antichrist? Not the Antichrist at the end of time, but the Antichrist. That is the person against Christ, and that is the person who is teaching falsehood about who Christ is. And they are alive and well in our world today. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? Now, that's a rather strong phrase. Who is the liar? Why would you call them a liar? What does it mean to lie? Well, if I know something is not true, and I say that it's true, I am a liar. If I believe that something is true, and I say that it is not true, I am a liar. Now, I could think that something's true and be wrong. And that doesn't necessarily make me a liar. It just makes me wrong. Right? You understand the difference. So why would he say the liar is the one who denies Christ? Well, two reasons, and I'll take both of these reasons. One of them is we're clearly talking about people who were in the community, either as members of the community or as leaders of the community. And when they walked away from the faith, they are demonstrating that everything they had lived to that point was a lie, right? I sat here and taught the gospel to you, and next week I walk away, and you go, why was he teaching that to me? Did he know that it wasn't true? Well, maybe. Option number one. But option number two is actually more important than that. And it ties back to what we ought to know. Go back to Romans chapter 1. The invisible attributes of God are clearly seen in creation. But you and I, this is a loose translation, but you and I have chosen to worship the created thing rather than the creator. And in doing so, we've chased after a lot of different things. 
And Romans chapter 1 goes on to tell us God lets us do that. So here's the thought. You are supposed to know who God is. But you and I in our sinful state are living a lie. We are pretending that we don't know that which we ought to know. We are condemning ourselves when we live a life as if there is no God when the reality of God should be evident to us all. We are living as if we were not created in the image of God, with the knowledge of God, and with an interest in God. We are living as if that is not true. Now, the first one is easier to understand. If I get up here and I tell you something that I know isn't true, I'm a liar. The second one, though, is a condemnation of all of us in our unsaved state. That's why it goes on to say, we are without excuse. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. John, having spent time with Jesus understands that when Jesus said, you want to see the Father? Look at me. That Jesus and the Father are intimately connected. You can't have one without the other. And just in case you're worried, we did mention the Holy Spirit up there three verses before. But he's dealing with false teaching, and right now that false teaching is not, is there a Holy Spirit? That false teaching is, is Jesus the Christ? And John tells us, if you have the Son, you have the Father. If you have the Father, you have the Son. If you don't have the Son, you don't have the Father. If you don't have the Father, you don't have the Son. Did I get all the combinations? What does that mean? I'm an atheist, but I think Jesus was a great guy. Then you don't understand Jesus. I believe in God, but I don't think Jesus really happened. Then you don't understand God. John is not allowing us to have that option. I want one, but I don't want the other. Now, John is clearly writing this to a Christian community. But in one sense, it's a um, discussion to the Jewish community. Yes, you have accepted the Father, but you've rejected the Messiah. Don't think that you have the Father. You're chasing after something else. You can't have one without the other. 
So, let you, what you have heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you have heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. Let what you know abide in you. And you are to abide in the Father and the Son. What does it mean to abide? Now, if we had another 30 minutes, it was my intent to jump over to John chapter 15. Remember, John wrote the letter, John wrote the book. Okay? I might add our tour guide in Italy, who is a Jewish Christian, Somebody once referred to John the Baptist, and he goes, no, John was not a Baptist. He was a Jew. <laughs> Different John, okay? But in John chapter 15 is the passage that you and I are very aware of about abiding in Christ. And there's this picture given, you know? He's the tree, and we're, huh? Go ahead the vine, and we are the branches, okay? What does that mean? The branch does not survive without the vine. That's pretty easy, right? Any question about that? As Doug Cecil once said, you are not called to be another vine, okay? You're not called to live a life apart from... Jesus. To abide means to live with, live in. And it's interesting because this passage says that we have this knowledge that we are supposed to abide with, and we are supposed to abide with the Father and the Son. Now, what does that mean? It means we live our lives as if we are connected to Christ. Why? Because we are connected to Christ. If you're not connected to Christ, you're not in the us. It just isn't there. Now, if you continue to read in John chapter 15, it says, if you abide in Christ... This is going to be demonstrated to the world by our love for each other. Do you know what John is going to do in 1 John? In the next chapter, he's going to start talking about love. Why? We abide in Christ, and we demonstrate that in our, by our, love for one another. That's a lesson to come. So, let what you have heard from the beginning abide in you. He's telling them they've heard the truth. They know the truth. How do we know that? Because they have been anointed by the Spirit. Take that truth and live in that truth. Abide with the Son and the Father, and this is the promise that he made to us 
eternal life. And we talked about this just a few moments ago. What is the promise that God has given us? Eternal life. Okay, math majors, how long is eternal? It's a long time. Now, let's look at eternal life. We'll say that's this big, okay? And I just fooled you because there is no right hand, okay? But this is eternal life. Now, in light of eternal life, how big is your life and my life? But wait, we've been alive for a long time. No. In light of this, how big is this? Now, when John says this is the last hour, he's talking about this little, little, little insignificant piece that you and I are living in. I shouldn't have used the word insignificant because it is significant. It is significant because it is the time that God has placed us to accomplish what God wants us to accomplish. So we are in the now, preparing for the eternal. Do you remember? This is where we ended last week's lesson. Back up. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. The last difference that we talked about last week about worldliness versus following after God is that worldliness is focused on the now. Godliness is focused on eternity. And that's how you and I are supposed to live our lives. Okay. We're going to race through the rest of this because I'm going to put myself out of business in the next couple of verses. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you, but the anointing that you have received from him abides in you, and you have no need for anyone that anyone should teach you. I think I just put myself out of business. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. You do not need a teacher. Why am I here? I don't know. Good question. What is he telling them? First off, the implication is, is that they are probably mature believers. They have heard the truth. When teaching, you do have to be aware of the place where your listener is. Okay? That makes sense, right? Um, in the book of Hebrews, the author tells us that I want to tell you deep things, but you're immature. You are children. You're not ready for the solid meat. I have to teach it to you. 
Here, John is not telling that to this congregation. He's saying, you don't need to be taught the truth. You know the truth. And I might add, we know the truth. In fact, we have it in a way that this early congregation didn't have it because you and I have it written down right here in front of us. So what is the job of the teacher? Well, when dealing with the ignorant, and I use that word in the not to mean stupid, I mean somebody who doesn't know, we have to teach the truth, right? Um, when I teach my high school students, and nominally these are good Christian high school students raised in Christian homes going to a Christian school, some of them are exceptionally ignorant about biblical things. They just don't know. And you want to know something? We were all at that position at some point in our life. You need to be taught the truth. But as Paul continues to tell us, as you mature, you don't need necessarily to be taught new truth. You need to be reminded of the truth that you already have. Go back to the Old Testament. When the nation of Israel is coming out of Egypt into the Promised Land, they keep putting up piles of rocks. Why do they do that? So they won't forget. So they will remember what God has done for them. Now, some of us have been in the church all of our lives. We've heard more sermons than we can remember. We've heard the truth, but we still need to be reminded of the truth. But what John is telling them is you have a teacher. You have been anointed by the Holy Spirit, and that Holy Spirit is going to remind you of certain things. Now, how does the Holy Spirit work? Well, one option would be for me to sit in my easy chair at home waiting for the Holy Spirit to pour the truth into my head. He could do that. Okay, I mean, I'm not any question doubting that he could do that. But what I have seen to be true is that I wander through my life and I read this book and I listen to this teacher and I have this experience and the Holy Spirit comes along and says, this is what that means. The Holy Spirit, I hope, uses the words that I tell you to convince you of the truth of God's word. But the teacher is the Holy Spirit. I'm just sitting up here reminding you of what the Bible has taught us. And if I teach something and that light bulb goes off and says, that doesn't smell right, guess what? I'm a fallible human being. I hope and trust that I am not an antichrist, but I am a fallible human being. The teacher that we ultimately have is 
the anointing of the Holy Spirit in our lives. So we take what we hear. You go hear a sermon. You leave here, you go hear a sermon. And I'm sure they'll do a great job. But you know, you go to the Holy Spirit and you say, help me to take this and apply it to my life. The teacher is the Holy Spirit. Why is that important? Because when the Antichrist, an Antichrist, shows up in your life, you're driving in your car, you're flipping stations on the radio, and there's some preacher, and he's telling you that Jesus Christ was a great guy, taught great stuff, but he was just a great guy. The Holy Spirit, who you should be listening to, should be telling you, "Uh uh-uh, don't listen to that. But when you listen to the sermon and you hear a good presentation of the Scripture, the Holy Spirit comes along and says, you know what you just heard? That means you ought to go do that. Okay? I've told you before, because I just think it's interesting. I've read the Bible for a long time. And there are passages that I don't have a clue what they mean. I just don't. But some of those passages I read, and 20 years later, I'm in some situation. And the Holy Spirit says, you know that passage you didn't understand? This is it. John is warning them about false teachers. He's reminding them of what they already know. And he's telling them to rely on the Holy Spirit, to help them to understand and to stay away from the false teaching. So if I or anyone else stands up and teaches that which is contrary to the word of God, don't believe me. Just don't do it. Hang on to the truth that you have heard. Hang on to what you know to be true because there's going to be people who are going to tell you something else. You and I know that's true because you and I live in this world. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for showing us the truth. May we live in that truth. For it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.